okay, here's what I'll say. I'll just put it simply. We have to stop investing in the potential of this getting me this, this, and that. So we'll take a job and say, well, this has the potential to make this instead of us saying, I'm going to take a job that starts at this salary. Mm. <laughs> Marie, welcome to Money Bites. Thank you. Happy to be here. Awesome. Our two starter questions. Sure. The first, give me two bullet points. One, about yourself and your career. And two, a trivia surprising fact about you. Ooh, I love that. Um, okay, number one, um, startup founder, uh, twice startup founder, now in uh, doing work in Web3 and DEI. And I just have an eclectic background. So it's always interesting to look at my career trajectory. And two, I am second cousin to Lenny Kravitz. <laughs> Did you grow up with him? No. Well, here's the thing. My my dad was married before he uh, married my mom and my half siblings. Some of them have a, have know him and have a relationship with him, but I haven't. My parents have met him. I haven't. Well, you're you're less than six degrees away from him. So exactly. Oh, that's what I should have used. I actually am six degrees separated from Kevin. <laughs> I have to ask. Do you like his music? <laughs> I do. Yeah, I do. It, it's always interesting because in the Bahamas, like Roker is a, a pretty common name. Mm. So um, here, people always ask me if I'm related to Al Roker. So. Yeah. <laughs> The second resident question, what's your first memory of money? Ooh, I love this. I think my first memory of money is, interestingly enough, my mom had bought me these beautiful pair of shoes and I was about six or seven. And I told my neighbor, um, my mom got me these shoes and she bought it on credit. And I just, in my mind, credit was like, you get it for free. And my neighbor said that, it means she still has to pay that credit card later. And I just remember just being like stunned about this because I just thought credit meant that, hey, this was a free way to get stuff. I started having questions about what is, you know, like really what is credit and thinking about money in a different way. This was how old? About six. Oh my goodness, you were precocious. <laughs> no, but it was just so funny because I that always sticks to mind because he laughed and said, um, she still has to pay that later <laughs> and explained, but I didn't know that. Did you talk to your mother about this later? I told her, you know, I relate the story to her and she just laughed. But mm -hmm. it we didn't get into a conversation about money, um, really. So, which is another interesting part because I wouldn't say that she was uncomfortable because my mom's great with her money, but I just think maybe she didn't feel it was necessary to have a conversation. Interesting that it sticks out. Do you think it has stayed with you in different ways of your current relationship to money? It might. I think it might. Here's what's interesting in the sense that I think of credit as something later, right? Like mm -hmm. I don't have to worry about it now. You know, I, I really want to say that I got it and I get money and I'm I'm really responsible, but I feel like it's still a learning process for me to really address some of those old habits. 
What's the top of mind old habit that you'd love to work on? I would say attaching money to mood. So for me, it's like, okay, did something great. I'm going to treat myself, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, I feel bad. I'm going to treat myself. So it's like, at what point do I separate my emotions from having to purchase something or have something tangible? I think that's where um, I would say my relationship with money is. It's also become almost like a coping mechanism. I would say so. Yeah. And I think especially when you're in this ecosystem of like startup and tech, you have highs and lows, right? As, mm-hmm. as a founder, you might have a high, a great day, or you might not have a great day. So really, I don't really need to tie money or buying something to these events in my life. I can actually just enjoy and embrace the moment, which I'm starting to do with meditation. Oh, wow. <laughs> you just went really deep. <laughs> I didn't mean to. No, 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 no. I love it. I, I've i tried meditation several times and I've, I've also reaped a lot of benefit from it, but making that into a habit, it's something that sticks has been really hard. So kudos to you. Oh yeah. It's, it's difficult. It's not as easy as people make it seem, but mm-hmm. I think what it is is I ask myself, how do I want to feel today? I love that prompt. That's such a good prompt. Yeah. Uh, Expanding on this relationship with money, Mm -hmm. would also be interested with your spouse, the relationship of money with your spouse. How has that played? My husband is one of the most responsible people I know with money. He knows what's in our bank account to the penny. Like he's very, yeah. And as generous as he is, and as much as he will not, he's not, I wouldn't say he's a penny pincher at all. He likes to save. I mean, seriously, he is really good. And so me having this kind of like mood money situation doesn't always um, (laughs) vibe well with, how his relationship with money is. And I had to take ownership of that. Interesting. Um, he is a veteran, you mentioned, right? Yes. Has that impacted your career in, in a sense that have, have you guys had to move a lot, et cetera, um, in, in um, your career choices? Well, we didn't have to move a lot, thankfully, but he did have multiple deployments, which kind of, what is it, it derailed my career but more so it kind of made me unsure about what's my next step so I was trying to find situations that would be a good fit for me while parenting while my husband's deployed because you know technically I'm a single parent but I'm not a single parent a lot of a lot of responsibility and for lack of a better word burden on your shoulder yeah and I would say that during that time, the mood money situation was not the best <laughs> um, because of the fluctuation in like, okay, what's happening today and what do I have to handle and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, it's it's a support, like a mental support that, that you've taken on. It was also the case that being the spouse of a veteran was one of the inspirations for your first startup now. 
Exactly. You know, um, what's great is this community, the military community is, I wouldn't say necessarily tight knit, but it's a community that embraces others that are in the military. And so um, knowing and having kind of like an insider perspective of what it's like for veterans and military spouses, mm -hmm. particularly those who are moving from city to, or country to country or, you know, whatever it may be, or transitioning to a civilian life, that is one of the most difficult things to do. So yeah, it inspired um, a startup that focused on getting veterans and military spouses into the tech industry. And I have to always like just give thanks to my great friend, Marika Edwards, who was also my co-founder, who literally set the foundation and for us to come together and continue to build was just an amazing experience. How did that first step take? So there's that point of, oh, this might be a good idea. And everybody has a bunch of this might be a good idea list, but it takes another to actually take the step in making something out of it. How did that first few steps look like? I think the first step is really asking others and kind of doing your own customer discovery in the sense of um, finding out, is this a need? Like, so I have this idea, but is it just an idea? Is it just something that, you know, yeah, it's cool, it's great, or it's cute, but it's not really um, something that can generate revenue or, or something that can create a product or service. So it's really tapping into your potential customers and talking to others, finding advisors to really help you and kind of steer you in the right direction. I really appreciate that. As a fellow entrepreneur, I feel sometimes there are great ideas, but if you're the only island that has that pain point or other people might not have as acute of a pain point for that need or that solution, yeah. it, having a fast, easy, cheap way to validate your idea um, and interviewing potential customers, I think that's a, that's a great advice. Yeah, I, I think um, we learned that. And I, I think that that's what I say, like every, everything you do, you learn from it, right? So that is something that stayed with me. And I have to credit Barika for that too, because she's been adamant, you know, she was adamant about, we've got to talk to people, we got to find out what their pain points are, we got to find out um, what their needs are. So like, if you don't know their fears, frustrations, their wants, their desires, you're kind of just building for yourself. And after the startup, you've had another startup and sort of pivoted into really cool other industries. Yeah. But where do you think for your first startup, the realization came, this in its current form may not be it? I like to say it's kind of like running in wet cement. Mm. You're not really getting anywhere, but yet you're trying to be hopeful and, 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 and say that this will change. And then realizing without funding, um, without consistent revenue, what, you know, what's going to be the future of this? Coming to that realization is very difficult, was very difficult. 
and I'll say is still a difficult process for anyone. Very true. I, I, I would love to get back to the funding topic before we close this discussion, but somehow that wasn't enough of an experience. You went on to find another startup. <laughs> I love pain. <laughs> Round two, wet cement. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> well, here's what's funny about that. This was at the height of the pandemic. If you think about it, that probably wasn't the, and I'm in, I wasn't, I'm still in New York. That wasn't the best time to maybe think about a startup, but everyone was home. We all needed something to do. And I just felt like, what can I contribute to? And how can I address, you know, this was right before the murder of George Floyd. And so then to really think about it and then to see all of this explode as far as like diversity and to say, okay, maybe this is the right time for it. But again, being cautious about where's the revenue going to come from? Are we going after funding and what should we be thinking about? So all of those just kind of bubble up and there's kind of this, I could say cognitive dissonance of like, okay, we can do this and thinking, okay, is this going to really happen? So as a fellow entrepreneur, again, I, I can so relate. I feel like when you are running a startup, there's always just enough glimmer of hope to squeeze you to keep going. But as a founder, you need to be the one to recognize the difference between perseverance versus having a realistic, cold, hard look at the situation and assessing it objectively. Oh gosh, that 100%. Your ego cannot get in the way of this reality because, you, you know, like thinking things are great. I'm great. You know, like this is going to happen. Um, and then just focus on you instead of the startup, right? Like, I think that's one, one of the ways we get lost as founders. We focus on the person, me as a founder. How do I need to show up? How do mm. I need to present myself? So I think there's a part of us that sh even if we're building in public or not, we're always trying to show elevate you know our status right and show that we've got this because it's all about that like you can't show vulnerability mm. in the sense of you know I don't want a VC to read that or see that and think I can't handle this or I don't have the money so it's always like let's show the great things we're doing instead of let's show those sleepless nights and yeah. <laughs> all the um quarts of ice cream we've eaten because we're so you know, stressed. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And in the uh, money situation, let's let's be vulnerable and let's talk about that a bit. Yeah. So, given Winnie is a platform and a community for women in tech, empowering to build generational wealth together, there are obvious sacrifices that need to be made. How did you make that assessment between going into a company, getting that paycheck? foregoing that security versus the risk and everything that comes along with startuphood? That is a great question. And I have to say, if I was not married and had like this other income to fall back on, I probably wouldn't have taken as many risks. You have to really plan ahead and think about 
how much money am I going to need to put aside to work on this startup if I decide to quit my job? And then you have to think about health benefits. I mean, everything, if you're a parent or a caregiver, down to every little nuance, you have to really be mindful because anything can happen. And if you don't have a, I don't want to say security blanket, but if you don't have money saved, you don't have this foundation that will help you to really put your time and energy into the startup, you're always going to be like very stressed. And not saying that having that money is not going to stress you out, but it's a different type of stress when you are really pushing for your startup or you're pushing to pay your rent, pushing to pay your bills, down to like taking care of your pets. If you have a pet, like little things matter. So you have to really think about, do I have not just the mental and emotional and, and physical energy, but do I have that money saved up? in order to do this. I really appreciate that. As a single woman, I have my day job. I work as a product manager at one of the big tech companies and my salary barely touches me. It's what like funnels into my startup. So I really appreciate the transparency that, you know, your idea takes you so far, but you also have to be realistic. How are you going to fund yourself so that you can build out your dream? And that might come in the form of good consensus in partnership with your spouse or partner. It might be in the form of keeping your day job. It might be in the form of a really cushy emergency fund, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I really appreciate the transparency of that. In the route that you do go funding, though, um, you made a really good point of making sure, especially women, to ensure they don't downball themselves. What was that about? You know, I think this is something we struggle with. We struggle with knowing our greatness Mm -hmm. and then attaching that to the value of our work, right? Okay, here's what I'll say. I'll just put it simply. We have to stop investing in potential, and what I mean is that in that is that we have to stop investing in the potential of this getting me this, this, and that without having a clear idea that this will help. So we'll take a job and say, well, this has the potential to make this instead of us saying, I'm going to take a job that starts at this salary mm. or I'm going to ask an investment investor for this much and pay myself a salary. So we're willing to make these kind of sacrifices because of the potential. And we have to stop that. And I mean that in every aspect of our lives, because I feel like as women, particularly, we do that a lot. And I don't like generalizing, but I feel like that is some, we're more willing to invest in potential than men are. I, that hits hard in different ways. Like I'm in the, I'm, trying to be in the dating scene right now and it's like don't invest in the potential of a man <laughs> look at him at face value exactly and and I've done that in the past where I was like ooh, and even if that nagging feeling was there and I still said no this has the potential to be 
And I remember doing that for a company because I really wanted to believe in this company. And I really wanted this to be something great. Um, but all the red flags were there. And here's what happened. We got let go. And this is the entire team mm. two days before Thanksgiving. Oh, oh, with an announcement that they had no more money, so they couldn't pay us. Oof. And I remember thinking, but you knew you saw those red flags, but you invested in the potential of this company. With that learning, what would be your advice for women to get what they're worth? The one thing to do is if you have all your skills, experiences, if you have that written out somewhere, or even send it to yourself, put it in emails, whatever it is, as a reminder of everything that you've done and why you deserve this, or everything that you are putting, you know, your, your time, your, your energy, your um, experience, your expertise into, write all those down, because that's what's going to remind you as you're negotiating, as you're having these conversations with an investor. No, this is why I need this. And this is why it's worth it. You shouldn't have to not pay yourself as a founder. That's like an old way of thinking. We can't do that anymore. You feel that's different from resume? Like how would list of skill sets pump you up more to help represent you? Because then you can tell your story. Mm. I think that's oftentimes we're negotiating something and we're we're so focused on this is what I'm going to say and this is why that we forget to back it up with data, right? Like that is our data. Like if we can say for three years I've worked here, this department grew by this percentage, we have our customer success, you know, all of that, give the numbers, quantify it. We need to quantify our, our, our value, our expertise, everything. And we don't do that enough. And so that's really it. It's telling your story, quantifying it. Here's the data. We know corporations, investors, everyone wants to know the numbers. That's what's going to help us. Knowing our personal numbers. What did we do? How did we change? What did we bring to a multi-billion you know, billion dollar corporation? Our, what small not even a small part. What part did we play in that company being successful? They didn't do it by themselves. Leadership didn't do it by themselves. What did you contribute? Know that and tell that. If you had to go through this experience of being a startup founder, et cetera, all over again, knowing the lessons that you shared and everything that you earned, what would you do differently? I think one of the things I would do differently is Again, one, not invest in potential of, oh, this is going to happen. But most importantly, I would take my time and not be attached to the outcome, but to stay enthusiastic about the startup. I became so attached to outcome, became attached to when this, then that, you know, if this, then that, as opposed to just, and of course, this could be the meditation speaking, but it as opposed to being present, as opposed to just saying, okay, what is happening? 
where do we want to be? But not just so like, this is the outcome. It has to be. And this is what we need to do. And, and just becoming so engrossed in that. And I, and I think the other thing I would suggest too, to women is if you decide to get a co-founder, be mindful, get to know that person, make sure that your values align with theirs. Mm. Don't just get excited about that you both have an idea. Like definitely make sure you have the same values, make sure you can trust each other, make sure that you can be honest with each other. I had to be honest, like Barik and I are still good friends, you know, and we're actually do consulting together, but I had to make a really difficult decision and tell her I had to take a part-time job while we were building our startup and then act eventually a full-time job because I didn't want to have my husband burdened with the one salary because mm -hmm. that becomes stressful too. So um, yeah, you have to be able to be honest with yourself and those around you. I can definitely relate. I think even not just your co-founder, but also your first few hires, but there's just something magical about a startup in the inception phase that people get really excited about it, but your working styles, your commitment level, like you said, plus one to value alignment, that needs to be in place. It, so I 100% agree that human resources is the hard, one of the hardest part about building yeah. a company. Oh, definitely. It is just human interactions, if you think yeah. about it, because you're going from being somebody who's part of something to now you being the person that is creating something. And now you have to, you have to do some self uh, examination to say, well, what kind of person am I really? Like, what kind mm -hmm. of leader am I? Am I ready for this leadership? Because mm -hmm. maybe you just want to build. And that's yeah. another thing I tell women. Know the difference between you just wanting to build and move on or you wanting to be an actual startup founder. Mm -hmm. And that's one thing I did learn. I am type of person who loves, I'm creative, I'm innovative. I love to build and move on. I'm not attached to an idea. I'm not attached to a startup. And that was a truth I had to tell myself, like, you just love to build. You don't necessarily like being a startup founder. You love to build and you love being innovative. You know, I, I don't think there's necessarily a good or bad in either of those roles. It's just your personality and where can you shine more? Exactly. One of the things that I found very inspirational about you was if you look back, the road that you've taken and the dots that you've connected is in leapfrog motion. <laughs> and I think that also comes down to your current role after the two startups. Somehow you got into Web3. Thanks to someone in our community from my last startup who told me, you know, you need to know Web3. He was like, you need to understand blockchain, you need to know all this. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, because at that time, it just felt like it was a lot of crypto dudes. So I was like, I don't know anything about this. He was, you know, he's a Gen Zer. <laughs> and so I'm the parent of a Gen Z. And I was like, you know what, let me look into this. And I fell in love. I was like, oh my gosh, this combines art and tech and just community and it's everything the tech industry 
maybe wanted to be originally, but kind of became its own thing. And so then I fell in love with this concept of really community building, because I felt like that's not something we do currently. I mean, in the tech industry is focus on, let's build a community. We think about let's build a product, let's provide better service, let's retain our customers, our employees. But do we think about, let's build a community of different stakeholders that share the same type of mission and vision and values. How much of the underlying tech understanding did you need to learn for you to be able to go into Web3? For me, it was understanding exactly what blockchain is. And I love that I have my own interpretation of it. Like I, you know, but understanding why decentralization is important and how, you know, um, this provides extra security and really separating Web3 into different compartments. Like I felt like when you say Web3, people think crypto, some people, some people think NFT, some people think blockchain. There's so much, but we haven't come to an agreement of what is Web3. Mm. Like I think we're still exploring it. We're still in the middle of it. And so this is why I think it's so exciting. A lot of people want to be experts. And there are people that honestly have been in this for years um, and can really speak to it. They were there, you know, at the beginning of Bitcoin. Like they can speak about the technology, about community. But most of us are still learning. Most of us are still growing in this space, which is great because it gives opportunity for different insights and experiences. Would you share any resources that helped you make the first foray? One of the ones I really like is called Ecolance. They offer great courses and resources. I did the trying to become a Web3 community builder. And I was literally in these Zooms and these courses and, and, and teams with people from different parts of the world and, and learning about how people are using Web3 in Latin America, countries in Africa, in the Caribbean. And so fascinating to me, as well as really seeing artists at the intersection of art and tech. It was just exciting. It's a, And so I would say Ecolance, Nisha Da Vinci, she's really big on Twitter. If you like follow her on Twitter, you'll just learn so much. And her newsletter is amazing. You know, there's other free resources, but I, of course, right now I can't think of them. <laughs> For our listeners, what would you say is your current main interest role and where can folks find you? I mostly on LinkedIn, um, curiousculture.co is our website, building community in Web3. I used to have a, bringing it back, with a LinkedIn audio, um, but just mostly having these conversations in different spaces, whether it's Discord, Telegram, there's so much out there and so much more like just joined threads yesterday. So there's just so many ways to connect. So you'll just look for me. I'm happy to connect, always happy to meet people on LinkedIn, find ways to either support or collaborate. And what type of opportunities are you looking to collaborate on? 
one thing I'm working on is a um, event here in New York City that really helps students, youth that are living in public housing, learn about Web3 and AI and how to use it um, responsibly and how to really tap into the creative economy, because I feel like that's where there's going to be big change. I mean, it's I project it to be 480 billion in four years. So right now we're, I think it's 250 billion. So really teaching people that that creative economy can also be part of Web3, can also be part of AI. It's just a matter of finding your place in this space. Love it. DEI, youth employment, Web3, AI. Yeah, pretty much sums up who I am. Marie, this has been so, so fun. Thank you so much for coming on. No, thank you for asking me and I appreciate it. I had fun too. Awesome, thank you. Yeah.